Welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode 184. Uh, I hope you guys are going to join me on a Friday night as this is a another edition of uh, Appetite for Distortion, I guess the, the mini-series version, uh, Feel My my Quarantine, you know, still in quarantine uh, here in Woodside, Queens. I'm in my apartments, I'm wearing my South Park pajamas, uh, pajama pants. Greg, because I right now I know you can't see me. Greg, uh, Greg Renoff is on the phone, so I'm wearing my Van Halen T-shirt from 2012. That's the only time nice. I, I saw Van Halen, uh, which I, I'm glad I saw Diamond Dave and Eddie together. But as far as the whole history, I know I did. I certainly didn't see some of the uh, the more iconic shows of Van Halen. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And as I introduce my my guest on the phone. Greg Renoff, author Greg, and you're, I guess we were introduced in a way through another author or, or journalist, I should say, uh, our friend Matt Wake, who writes for AL.com. And I'm glad we're finally, we're finally doing this. We're finally doing an episode because I want to pick your brain. Yeah, it's really cool. I, uh, Matt's a great dude and uh, he, I know he's been on a number of times with you and I've heard some of the podcasts you guys have done together. So this is great and I'm looking forward to, uh, to chatting with you. Thanks for having me on. No problem. So, you know, we're just, let's make sure at the beginning we say uh, you're an author of two books. One is out right now, uh, Van Halen Rising, about the the early days of Van Halen. The, the, the bat, we will talk about it, of course, when they would play backyards and how they just took over the world. And you have a, another one coming out, you said in about two weeks, two and a half weeks, about the, uh, the producer of I mean, he was a producer of a lot of things, but the Van Halen's uh, first record, Ted Templeman, right? Yeah, so the uh, rights of Van Halen Rising came out in 2015. And uh, yes, this book I worked on with uh, Ted Templeman, their uh, record producer, and he produced the Doobies, uh, Van Morrison, Little Feet, Carly Simon, Bullet Boys, I mean, a number of, I mean, Honeymoon Suite, we go on and on with the list. But um, yeah, it's his uh, authorized autobiography. I wrote it with him. And uh, yes, it'll be out April 21st, and it's available now for pre-order, and so on and so forth. But yeah, it's, uh, it's just about to come out. Wow, that's awesome! Congratulations for you to to write that with him. It's not so much. It, it's one thing to write a book about, you know, which is still great. But to write that with him, you know, um, I, I have a feeling that you know more about Van Van Halen than I know about Guns N' Roses. Let me just say that <laughs> uh, right no, now. No, we'll see. We'll <laughs> see. I expected. I expect it'll be an interesting conversation. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was a fun book to write, and I, uh, the Van Halen book, and I definitely spent a lot of time researching it and was, you know, interested in, like you, I think, in uh, what you do with your podcast is sort of doing uh, doing justice and giving kudos to the band you love, and that was that was my thing. I was definitely, uh, you know, wasn't shy about the fact that I was a fan, but I wanted to be uh, to be accurate and really explain how they kind of weaved their way through backyards and Pasadena up to the club scene and eventually broke out in 78 and um, became the biggest new band on the scene much like Guns N' Roses did in 87, 88. 
Yeah, it's quite amazing that both of their debut albums were almost within a decade of each other, but they really defined different eras. And we're going to talk about, you know, uh, the debut albums, and we've had fun comparisons online. And let me just say, you know, when we talk about who had the the better debut, Guns N' Roses or Van Halen, it's all just, this is just fun conversation because we're all in quarantine. There's no, I, that's what, I don't know about you, Greg, but I would see the answers because we'll read some, I'll read some of the comments like, oh, it's not, it's no question it's Van Halen. No question it's Guns N' Roses. Why not? Why can't I like both of them and, and, and debate it? So there's no right or wrong, but we're going to have fun uh, discussing I, I, it. I had a couple of analogies running through my head with it. I was thinking about when I was, uh, we were talking about our childhoods and I, I grew up, uh, I lived in Queens in the 70s and okay. we would go into, the, um, you know, when I would go into the bedroom of uh, the houses of friends in the neighborhood in Queens and the, the older brothers would have their, their posters on the wall if they were really like, you know, really cool. They'd open their closet door and they'd have like a poster of Cheryl Teagues or something in a bikini <laughs> or something like that. It's like, you know, at the time it was like Cheryl Teagues or Cheryl Ladd. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it was like, well, you know, who's better? I don't know. It, it was just, yeah, I mean, they're both amazing uh, debut records. It's like Portion Ferrari or something like that. What do you like better? It's, it's, uh, I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's necessarily one right answer when you're dealing with two albums that obviously and so clearly change the course of rock history. And it's not like you're comparing some like, you know, kind of half-assed, you know, half-assed rock band with like Zeppelin's debut or something like that. It's, it's, it's obvious that both albums deserve, uh, massive, uh, credit for what those, uh, those bands did to really shift, uh, shift uh, the whole landscape of rock. I know. It's not like comparing, you know, Mozart to Menudo, but... There you go. But it's funny. As I, I'm, I'm going to read comments throughout. Somebody replied on your Twitter, and uh, make sure to follow uh, Greg Renoff. Uh, just, and it's pretty it's pretty phonetically. just two Fs uh, on Twitter. And this person, what did he write? I just scrolled past it. Uh, oh, Hugh. Of course, a guy named Hugh would write this. That's like the 1927 Yankees against a really good Little League team. Oh, come on. It's not like that. <laughs> so before we really dive deep into, because I mean, like, I'm with you. They're both, they're both great. Uh, how did you, I guess, start? Because I mean, I've talked about how I started a Guns N' Roses podcast. How did you, you know, maybe does it intertwine of how you first became an author? Is that was that your first book to write a Van Halen book? Was that always your goal? Well, how did that happen? Well, I'm a I'm actually a recovering college professor, so I actually wrote ah. a prior book, uh, which was an academic book. But uh, Van Halen Rising was my first my first rock book, and it you know it was uh, it started out as just a fun side project as a writer, and uh, I was a uh, a college professor, historian, a college professor. So we just wrote up, lost some steam, do something a little bit different for fun, and it snowballed into a book. But uh, it, for me, it, it it allowed me to to go back to my uh, childhood uh, obsession with Van Halen and uh, read every guitar magazine that Eddie Van Halen was in. And I read the circus magazines and, you know, all the uh, rip magazine, I read all, all that stuff through the Hagar years and all that stuff. And it's sort of um, kind of for me to be able to go back and figure out how the band made a name for itself and actually broke out, which was always a little bit fuzzy. If you read Wikipedia or these other websites, it was always, you know, I'm sure the same thing with Guns N' Roses. There's a lot of urban legend and oh, things that sure. just don't make sense. You're like, well, oh, that doesn't make, that can't be right. And, you know, um, so for me, wanting to try to lay out the events in sequence and really talk to people who were around and hired Van Halen to do backyard parties or haul gear for those guys or, you know, like Ted Templeman, I, I interviewed him for the book or pr- produced them or engineered their record, these types of things. I wanted to really kind of get the full the full Van Halen um, 
a 360 degree view for people to get a sense of you know, how amazing their um, their story was. And the uh, the book, yeah, ended up culminating in 1978. So it starts in the early 70s and culminates in 78, kind of when they break through and they have their um, first big uh, breakthrough and become stars and that's where the book ends and so yeah that was was a really fun thing for me i had no uh no expectations that it was going to do as as well as it did it really um really for i think for a lot of fans really was uh someone wrote to me on twitter the other day i was actually right i was actually thinking this is actually dead on right someone wrote you know i've been arguing for people with years about what i you know why van halen was great and you're probably you after they read your book was just sort of hand up the book you know so, <laughs> you know for me it was just it was um it was, yeah, wanting to kind of make the case for why Van Halen matters. Really, that was the, the, the big thing um, because I felt, um, you know, I'm sure you can look at the same thing with Guns N' Roses where there's periods where there are different guys that have been out of the band and they've been in, in activity and there's been rumors and just kind of crazy stories and, you know, they've kind of become a punchline to people's jokes. And yeah. uh, I wanted to kind of go back and be like, you know what, they came out of the gate and kicked everybody's asses and they uh, they wrote their own rules and, and became the biggest band in the world. And the same thing can be said for Guns. I feel like there's a lot of similarities. And of course, you know, you could argue, you know, without Van Halen, would there be a Guns N' Roses? But there were bands before Van Halen that they were influenced by. We can, I mean, that's a whole, you know, other philosophical conversation uh, about that. But what about, I guess, Van Halen for you? Like, how old were you when you first, uh, I guess, were introduced when they, when they came into your life? How old were you? So, yeah, my, my real first experience with understanding what Van Halen was, was, uh, when I was 14 and I was living in, uh, Northern New Jersey and I, I discovered Van Halen through MTV and jump. I always say I probably heard pretty woman on the radio. Um, but it hadn't really registered who it was. It was just a song by a group. And I thought that was a good song. Um, didn't mean, didn't mean anything to me, but that was it for me. I just saw that video and, uh, I bought the, the Van Halen, uh, jump single actually, and I flipped it over and heard the, the B side of Jump, which was, you know, back in the day for, for uh, maybe you have some, we have some really young listeners who, you know, you flip over the, the 45 and there'd be a, there'd be a song that was an album track that would never was going to be a single. It was a B side, it was called, and it was House of Pain, which was the last song on uh, 1984. And Eddie Van Halen's guitar was so nasty sounding and it was just so, um, I don't even know how to explain it. It was just sort of like kind of really rocked me in terms of, um, connecting connecting with me with what i really liked out of music i was like wow this is this is amazing i never heard anything like this before and i saw van halen in 1984 tour i was lucky enough to scalp a ticket from a kid at school and uh that was my beginning with van halen and then <laughs> less than a year later or whatever about a year later uh something like that a little more than a year later van halen breaks up uh, sammy Hagar <laughs> joins the band and uh it was a whole different ball game but that was that was my beginning with van halen see that's what i talk about a lot on on the podcast it's not just like Hey, Guns N' Roses, they rock and roll, man. It's it's talking about, you know, the era that, not just like the era that they existed, but the era of the fan and when you found them and how that has then defined, you know, ha then how do you define the band versus somebody who technically grew up with them? Because right. when, when music was really conscious to me, when I was past listening to the Muppet Babies on cassette and was getting into rock and roll, it, you know, Guns N' Roses was already broken up. So was Van Halen. You know, I, I, I do recall when Van, that whole, the famed, uh, when David Lee Roth came out looking like he was off the set of Hee Haw on the MTV Awards, all right? Yeah, sure, yeah. When, they, when he yeah. was in the overalls. So yeah. I remember yeah. that, but then that amounted to nothing. So I just grew up with, 
I'm never going to see any of these bands live. And for whatever reason, maybe because Guns was newer, I gravitated. That's why I gravitated towards them, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm 36 now, so I'm younger than you, so I'm closer to the GNR era. So maybe that's why. But it's interesting. I was looking at the the track listing today for Van Halen One, which came out before I was born. At least I can argue Appetite came out when I was four. I don't know if that means anything, but it's how I got introduced because I bought Appetite, so I just bought that record. Van Halen, I isn't, I'm not sure if I ever bought the first record. However, I've heard every single one of those songs on the radio, which yeah. made me download all those songs on Napster or LimeWire, you know, at the time. And next thing I know, it's like I have the entire first record. Their whole album is their their hits. Every single one is a, is a radio single. I don't know if any other album is like that. Including Eruption. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's one of those albums, especially now on uh, Sirius, you will hear every single single track. Uh, there were four singles released from Van Halen 1. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, even, Sorry, even the... Uh, the um, That's okay. It's my girlfriend on her uh, her phone meeting. That's what we do. In, <laughs> that's what we do in quarantine. No one, can, no one can get mad at anybody about that. Where's she going to go? I mean, she's like, she's, at least know, bring stuff. me a cat to show in the video. <laughs> Sorry. It's uh, even with um, you know, with the the you really got me video, which came out in '78, which is kind of you know kind of a primitive music video. They had uh, a bit of eruption in it, so it was like even that was considered to be part of the you know part of the marketing plan for the record. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, in looking at the Guns record too, it's I, I love thinking back about the Guns record in terms of its slow burn. You know, Van Halen had a slow burn. In some ways, but it was it was in a lot of ways. By the basically, the album came out in February of '78, and by the summer, they had sort of made a name for himself, where it was starting to sell. And eventually, by the end of the summer, it had gone. It sold, I think, it sold a million copies by the end of the summer of '78. But um, you know, the Guns record is like a whole different deal. I mean, how it just sort of you know, comes out in uh, you know the summer of '87, and it's basically it just doesn't really do much of anything and just has eventually where it culminates a year later where it's the biggest album in, in the world. It's amazing. It's an amazing, amazing climb by those guys to the top. It's like, again, it, it's so, there's so many similarities between the two bands. And I, I guess I came upon it today. Did you ever read the, the joint article between Eddie Van Halen and Slash? I have seen it. Yeah. I haven't read it in a long time, but I, that, that was a really cool, a cool, uh, I think it was either it was a uh, musician magazine. Is that right? I believe so. Because I'm yeah. wondering if you could talk about because they're both iconic, and it's not just in rock and roll. Eddie Van Halen is a brand. I mean, if if for nothing else, because of Bill and Ted. I mean, they were obviously famous, but to a whole slew of new new kids. Like for me, growing up, when I since I didn't grow up with Van Halen, I'm like, who is this Eddie Van Halen that you know that they're talking about? Uh, wasn't exactly like that, but I'm just giving an example. Uh, but with, with Slash, it's the same thing. It's, it's it's a brand. It's more than just a guitar a guitar player. So, is there what what's is there any similarities you, you think you see uh, between the two, even though they seem to have very different personalities? Well, I mean, I think for sure what I, what I would say is about about Slash and Ed, or they both had their their iconic their iconic look. Um, the guitars, so you know, so different in some ways, but obviously, when you look about um, Eddie Van Halen, you think about the striped, the striped guitars and his 
his little grin, you know, the cigarette dangling from his lips and the grin and the and the uh, the shag haircut he had for years. That was sort of his 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 look. And when you think about Slash, it's it's, it's so different. The hair, the top hat, the cigarette, and then of course the Gibson guitars. And from you know, honestly, I mean, that's the thing that's just really interesting is that for for my recollection, I was a guitar player. I still play guitar, but I don't play very well. Um, you know, when Slash hit the scene, it was sort of you know, I don't want to say that Gibson and Les Pauls weren't hip. I mean, they obviously were hip, but there was a lot more of, um, in 86, there was a, probably a lot more interest in people playing the suit of Eddie Van Halen Strath. But when Slash right. came around and started playing with those Les Pauls and had such a great sound and, you know, those solos were so amazing on the record and the riffs, it really, uh, you know, it, it, it made him an icon in so many ways. And of course that built years later, just like Eddie has become, you know, larger than rock. I mean, honestly, if you, you know, if you, you put Slash in front of somebody's grandma, they'd be like, "Isn't that that guitar player?" They're gonna know, like, <laughs> right, they're, exactly. That guitar player, they're gonna, they're not gonna be like, "Who's the weird guy with the hat?" Exactly. Uh, and the hair, even if he doesn't have a guitar, they might. They're probably gonna know who he is because he's such a, um, you know, such a, an unusually singular person. And uh, you know, the other thing I would say in terms of the two guys is they had a tremendous um, songwriting run. I mean, I think the thing about. Um, Guns was probably, there was probably a little bit more collaboration in terms of some of the other guys in the band getting more opportunity to write, where with Van Halen it was much more um, Ed and Dave. Um, you know, we all like the uh, the Izzy songs on uh, Use Your Illusion and stuff like that. Those were always cool, but um, you know, you know, Slash is obviously responsible for the majority of their big riffs and their big hits right. in terms of what he delivered there, so both guys did that too. So, you know, if you have the technical ability, the look, the, uh, the ability to sort of shift shift everyone's brain in the guitar world to go oh yeah you know strats with uh whammy bars and one pickup are really cool where slash you know oh the, look at this this gives and les paul which is kind of a you know obviously the jimmy page guitar is you know that's really a cool look all those things coming together those guys are those guys are legends it, it, it again it's it's just amazing how these two bands i mean i damn i wish i grew up i was like at that era you know to be alive and during the the, the peak of those bands must be something else. And I just do my best to relive it, which is why it's so great that you create such a great picture in your, your books and you're doing this research for, for us. I'm curious, who do you think is the more difficult lead singer to work with? Ax <laughs> Axl Rose <laughs> or like, David Lee Roth? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, you know, I'm going to say probably Axl was probably more difficult to work oh. with considering what happened in the wake of guns. Um, you know, the thing about Dave is for better or for worse, you know, he always wanted, you know, I think, I think it's pretty clear that after, um, the 1990s rolled around, Dave wanted back in the band and would have, would have probably come back in the band under, um, you know, under the understanding that he was sort of ceding some power to the Van Halen brothers, but it never really seemed to work out. But, um, you know, I don't know. It just seemed like he like, you know, it was like he was never going to like uh, cede any sort of control um, to anybody else. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of like getting along with other people, it would seem to me that Axel was probably a little bit more difficult. That's my take on it. I mean, I'm sure if Eddie Van Halen was on the phone with us now, he'd be like, you're, you know, you're crazy. Dave was impossible. <laughs> like, you know, but, um, you know, that was always my sense from the, the comments that Dave would make later on in the 90s. He was much more... Um, you know, sort of willing to bury the hatchet and the things he said, like on Howard Stern show and stuff like that. It would seem like he was, whereas I never really got the impression, at least publicly, that Axel was willing to really bury the bury the hatchet, so to speak, with those other guys and, and you know, was no. willing to share the spotlight for years. I mean, it was like, 
actual it was actual band. Yeah, and and speaking of which, uh, I tagged you in this comparison the other day, and I don't know if it was a reach, but I was I wanted to see what people would say. You know, it's like it's like how do you feel about g- the Guns N' Roses when it was Axel, or whether it be Bumblefoot or DJ Ashba or Buckethead, when it was not the Guns N' Roses you were probably familiar with, versus when it became Van Hagar. What do you think was a bigger pill to swallow? I mean, obviously Van Hagar. You know, with Sammy, they did extremely well. But maybe at first, what do you think was uh, more shocking? You know, Buckethead or Sammy Hagar? You know what I mean? <laughs> I think, I mean <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, I was probably more shocked. Actually, to be honest with you, I was actually more shocked with Buckethead. Um, okay. You know, Sammy was like a, you know, Sammy was around in the 80s, and he was a guy who was, uh, Meaning he was on MTV with I Hand Drive Fifty Five, and he was he was a guy who had had a career. I mean, everybody who was a rock fan kind of knew who Sammy Hagar was. You know, with with Buckethead, I mean, he was kind of more of a very acquired taste for a lot of people. Very obscure guitar player, kind of known to shredders and people who were really into rock guitars. <laughs> you yeah. know, but it's like it's like you know. And for me, I, you know, I I, uh, I loved Guns, and I still love Guns and Roses. I. Uh, you know, was was around when obviously when their debut album came out. I was a slow a slow to adopt it. I have a very very vivid memory of my cousin. This was probably in the fall of '87, um, telling me about this band Guns N' Roses. I'm like, who the fuck, who the fuck is Guns N' Roses, man? Like, I, I was like, you know. And then like you know, six months later, I had to go back to my tail between my legs or whatever it was. Like, you know, and be like, hey man, you're right. He was like, yeah, he was younger than me, and that was kind of his moment to be like, he had kind of caught on. He'd gotten it. Like, been like, this is a really cool album and. You know, I just whatever thought, welcome to the jungle, whatever, just sort of a song that's like a one, you know, one shot thing. And, and uh, but, um, you know, it, it was such a uh, I don't know, it was such a cool moment to be uh, to be with the, that uh, band blowing up like they did, because they just like I said earlier, they just sort of, you know, snowball. It was it was it was a really amazing thing. I'll tell you another quick story that people might appreciate. I have a very good friend, Liz went to high school with her and she went to Syracuse University um, for her freshman year. This was in the fall of 87. She was there and uh, I remember she came back at Christmas and Guns was getting big. Um, you don't know where the album was at that time but that was about six months after it was out and they were definitely you know, getting a big name for themselves and she's like, I saw this band Guns N' Roses that, you know, and I said, when? She says, I saw them at this club called The Lost Horizon in Syracuse. So this would have been like Halloween 1987, she saw them in a club, you know, and of course, you know, they were playing stadiums by the next summer. They were playing with Aerosmith and stadiums. And so, you know, it was a very, uh, a very, um, gradual thing for them. And, and, uh, yeah, I love, I loved watching that happen because it was, because it seemed like those guys really were really meant it. And that's the other thing too, I would say, you know, I think the thing about Sammy Hagar is that, um, you know, I think he, He's a guy who means it. Doesn't seem like he's dangerous. Whereas the guys in Guns obviously seem like they're dangerous, and they mean it. If that makes sense, it does make sense. And this is, you know, this is a great comment. Um, <laughs> with with Twitter, I mean, sometimes these Twitter handles are ridiculous. Uh, well, I guess this is this is his name, Baby Yoda at the Wet Market. Writes this. I I don't make this shit up. Uh, he wrote, he writes, he wrote, so I can't read. That's not him. Right. No one should be saying that right <laughs> I, now. I know. Uh, the VH1, uh, VH1, reading it like that. Van Halen 1 is more of a party album. The whole album feels like a celebration almost. 
Uh, people always had it on repeat at parties back in the day. I'd say uh, there aren't any weak links on Appetite for Destruction either. Every track is pretty kick-ass, even the less famous ones. It's definitely darker, though. So I thought that's the big difference. Would you? How, do you feel that way? That maybe if you were to make a big difference between the two records, that one's more of a party record, one's more of a you know an angry, gritty rock record. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the definite. I don't know if I accept all those those points. Um, okay, just being laid out there. But um, here's how I, I just formulate it a little bit differently. I mean, I think I think the Van Halen record. Particularly, I know this from my conversations with Ted Templeman and working on his the book that's going to come out in a couple of weeks is that you know he wanted the band to be have like more of an upbeat Southern California like sunshine vibe to it. Like he wanted it to be heavy and to be like intense. And of course, there's like Atomic Punk and Running with the Devil, which are sort of these darker songs. But he really wanted it to be have an overall vibe that was more you know um, upbeat. Like he didn't want it to be like Black Sabbath or like Deep Purple, where it was more like um, a lot of minor key stuff, and real dark and how it approached it, you know. Um, so I get the idea that it's more of an upbeat, like a party record. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, with Guns, I mean, I think the thing about, about Guns N' Roses is it was, it, it really was, it was, you know, it, the lyrics, there was a, like, you know, David Lee Roth doesn't sound angry. You know, he sounds no. like he's like having a great time and he's like, we're going to get in the car, yeah. drive to the Sunset Strip, we're going to get a couple cases of beer, we're going to pick up an eight ball of Coke and we're going to go party <laughs> with a bunch of chicks. I mean, really, that's what the, the vibe of the album is, like a fun, upbeat, sure. like Saturday night record. Whereas like Guns N' Roses is much more like you're in the back alley, it's three in the morning on a Saturday night and someone's just ripped you off on a you know, dope deal and you're going to like knife them. I mean, that's really is the, yeah. you know, with, especially with Axel's lyrics and just the whole, you know, it was much more of a, um, I, you know, uh, I guess dark is the right word, but it was much more of a gritty. And that's why they, you know, that's why they broke, broke out so big is because it was such an antidote to a lot of the stuff that was around at the time. and was much more, um, you know, it wasn't dangerous. I mean, that's what people like about rock and roll is it's dangerous. And, you know, right. a lot of the stuff that was being on empty time was dangerous. I mean, there's that famous picture I love of, of Slash and uh, maybe Duff walking off at the American Music Awards drunk, like totally drunk, giving the finger, yeah. like walking off the stage, giving people the finger. And that photograph, I remember seeing that photograph in magazines. You're like, wow, that's like on TV. And they're giving, you know, it's not like at some arena, there's like doing that. It's like on TV, you know, and at the time that was a big deal. That was a big deal, you know, to do stuff like that. I like know. That was the like stuff that got you like banned from TV. And, you know, was, this wasn't on cable. It was like, you know, it was the network TV. So those guys were dangerous. And it was, it was, uh, you know, in some ways, again, it just it was a different different type of vibe. I mean, you never thought like you know Eddie Van Halen with his grin was gonna like you know like you know block you over the head with a blackjack <laughs> and steal your wallet, which you know like you, you thought maybe maybe uh, one of those guys at Guns N' Roses would do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I just want to say hi to people uh, who are chiming in. Uh, Adrian from Mexico City says, "What's up?" Uh, Dan also says, "Hey, Brando." Uh, Mike Clark says, "This he th- he believes this." Um, I'm not sure what uh, how old he is. GNR was way bigger. They kicked glam rock in the ass and uh, took it to a new level. They were and are ahead of their time. Could you make that argument about Van Halen? Like, who did they kick in the ass when Van Halen One came out? Oh, well, I mean, yeah, that, that's that's the thing. I mean, when Van Halen One came out, think about what was what was popular at the time. It was um, the Eagles were huge, so soft rock, Linda Ronstadt, all that Southern right. California so soft rock, uh, punk rock was seen to be the the basic uh, thing that was going to take over the world. Uh, Sex Pistols in 1978 were supposed to be the biggest band in the world. That was the, the thing. In fact, the Sunset Strip in 1977 was not, no, not glam rock. It was not, 
it was not the stuff that was around 10 years later. It was all like the Ramones and mm. all these local LA bands that were um, punk bands. Devo was playing at the Whiskey of Go-Go, these types of groups. And so Van Halen was was a group that was, I would argue, like the least likely of those types of, of, of a band to, to get so big. And so to come along and like blow all those other bands um, away. And the big thing is disco. I mean, you know, disco was so huge. The Grease soundtrack, I think, was in Saturday Night Fever, the two biggest selling records of that era. So, you know, I mean, you kind of understand like 50s revival and disco and to have Van Halen with their uh, super intense guitar solos and the screams from and this great uh would have been called at the time heavy metal and had this pop sheen to it. I mean, they, Van Halen blew all that stuff away. And, and for those guys to break through at that time, I mean, that's one of the things I was always so attracted to about the Van Halen story was that nobody thought, I mean, you know, Ted Templeman will say that himself in the, the book that's going to come out. He's like, you know, there weren't even many people at the record company that he worked for that were super confident in Van Halen. They were like, yeah, you know, they'll sell a hundred thousand records basically. And they'll, you know, they'll go to the top 100 and they'll disappear after two records. But it's okay. Ted likes them. You know, it's one of those things. This is a comment from another weird Twitter name, uh, Albino Rhino. <laughs> uh, no disrespect to Guns N' Roses, but even Slash would give it up for Van Halen. I think he's right, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, I think that is, I think that is right. I mean, that's that really, I would really urge people to uh, check out the uh, interview you referenced earlier that's uh, Slash and Ed Van Halen. I think it was a musician magazine. It was around 1995 or so. But yeah, it's really. It's uh, interesting because it, it is uh, it is you know shooting the shit there with, with Slash and it was cool that you could tell that Slash is not on some sort of ego trip himself. He's just you know kind of like paying tribute to Ed, like not kissing his ass, but being like, yeah, you're you know you, you guys came along and just sort of kind of going through his own experiences as growing up a Van Halen fan and explaining um, you know how it it helped uh, helped uh, affect him as a as a musician and you know they kind of did some comparison of their their experiences as live players and stuff. It's a really great, it's a great interview. I want our last thing to do was maybe break down, because we could be here forever, obviously. Uh, I want to break down the, the tracks with you. Sure. And maybe we can have some fun that way. Like, can you, can we argue what is the better lead-off track? Welcome to the Jungle, Running with the Devil, or is that like a oh, Sophie's Choice? Can you even do that? I, you know, that's actually another one of these things we go back to the beginning of the conversation that's a really i mean you know the thing i would say is i i i think in my estimation you might i love to hear what you think about it. i feel like i feel like um jungle was was ultimately and still remains to be the ultimate signature song for guns i mean maybe maybe switch out of mind maybe um you yeah. know i'm not sure that run with the devil as great as that is and how important that is to the van halen catalog i don't feel like that's like van halen's like necessarily its signature song hmm. so that might be something to be said for that that the album opened with a song that is still like the song you most associate with guns and roses i do at least is probably welcome to the jungle um whereas you know there's jump and there's panama and these other songs that came along later which maybe would more first come to mind for people but and that's again another another tip of the hat to, to guns and roses to start off their record with that song with that riff and that uh track which became you know played everywhere i mean it was just played everywhere that video was so so important axel getting off the, the bus with the, the the straw in his mouth I and mean, it's just like right. it was such a cool it was so cool i mean the whole thing and how that all, all came together and and again we're saying that you know that has to be on a certain level because running with the devil is still you know top 
what, 50 rock and roll songs of all time? And so it's probably, and it's like, it's a top five. I mean, you know, you could like ever make people make their list wherever they, wherever they yeah, want. Yeah, it's all opinion it's based, probably of course. a top five Van Halen song. I mean, I think in most people's list. So I'm not like knocking the song. I'm just saying it's, it's probably not the signature quote unquote Van Halen song like uh, Jungle is for most, I think for most people and they think about guns. And that's the point. It's like, we're not knocking any of it. This whole conversation is just to show how fun this is and how, lucky that we these two bands came along that we get to have conversations like this decades later you know and it's interesting because you can go with these these great introductory tracks and then it's it was a gamble would you, would you think uh, eruption was a gamble to have as the the, the second track for, uh, on that on that record I, in radio I, I will say this eruption always goes into you really got me so that's growing up in radio that's how I've I know those songs are married in a way, but to, to make that the the second track a solo was that risky at the time. I, you know, I think I think it was part of part of Ted Templeman's strategy the way he so he sequenced the record, and so I think that was part of his strategy to put the guitar playing front and center, basically like put it in between the lead off track and then the single, the first single, the you know, like basically it's unskippable, right? Like you know anyone's going to listen to the first three the first side of a record, um, probably, but, you know, to get to the second song, we are, you know, when you most listen to most people's debut records, you figure, oh, the second song, the second track's going to be the single, the first song will be kind of the kick-ass rock song, and to have it be so, um, so in your face, I mean, somebody, actually, I just did a podcast with um, somebody who was saying, you know, it was almost like a, uh, an F you to, like, to punk rock and F you to, like, soft rock, it was, like, basically, like, this is, this is it, man guitar playing is going to be in your face this entire record and it, it you know it was i think a testament to ted templeman's confidence in eddie van halen that he knew that this guy was was the game changer and that's uh you know one of the main reasons why ted signed not the only reason but one of the main reasons why ted signed van halen is because he loved eddie's playing so much and to say we're going to put this crazy guitar solo which is going to rewrite all the rules right up front um yeah i mean i think it is it was it was probably unorthodox but i think ted had a lot of confidence in that he knew that this thing was this this guitar player was something different there was not a lot of guys who could do this or weren't any guys who could do this i don't know any other guitar instrumentals that are that might be number one as far as what we know right i mean you could we have it's not on the on any album but when slash does the godfather it's not on the level of eruption even if it wasn't in the album on any album it's eruptions in, in the world of, the, of its own it really is. All these years later, it's interesting too. With uh, you know the, the the shift to go from running with the devil to eruption, then you go to appetite, and you have the shift from welcome to it's so easy vocally. Like I recently played, and whatever I still love her. My girlfriend never listened to appetite all the way through, and she thought it was a different singer on it's so easy. She's like, oh, is this still Axel? This isn't him. No, it is. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So that can yeah. be that can be considered a risk. Uh, as yeah, well. I mean, that was that was actually that was I remember that very vividly actually when listening to uh, to uh, Appetite the first few times how different his voice sounded between the two songs and they would have seven sing in a, a totally different uh, timbre there and, and lower a much lower really interesting and uh, yeah I mean you know but that whole first side of that well I don't want to jump the gun but yeah it, like yeah um, it's it's right right there. You're ducked in, but I, I was always like the first tracks. You're just like with that bass lick, especially. You're just like so sucked into that second track by Guns. 
again, it, it, and this is another comment because I always felt this way. And I, I started off the, the conversation where if I look at the Van, a Van Halen's first record, every single one of those songs is played on the radio. And that's saying something because people say radio plays the same songs all the time. <laughs> but for them to play every single Van Halen song on that first record says so much to the test of time. But you don't get that on Appetite. And I understand there are curses. So I'm not even talking about, about that. But there are some people that believe Appetite as fillers. I don't. Do you ever hear that about Van Halen, the Van, I, Van Halen one, any fillers? Like even because I, I, I love no, ice cream. No. Do people have a problem with ice cream. No, I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I'd be, you know, maybe I'm like completely delusional as a Van Halen fan, but I, I think I, I, I never heard anybody to me say that. Oh yeah, there's a lot of filler on Van Halen one. I mean, I know, and I actually don't think there's filler on Appetite actually at all. Um, you know, I think there were 13 songs in Appetite. Is that right? Uh, I, I should know that off the bat. Is Rocket Queen 12 or 13? I should know that right off the bat. 12. I mean, you know, so you have it. The other, the other thing to think about is that you have it's 12. The, it's 12. It's 12. So, yeah. 12. So you have the CD era versus the LP era. So there was the longer record, you know, so arguably if they had, if Appetite had recorded and written in 1977, it would have been a shorter record. There's no question about it. They would have, because they wouldn't put more than 35 minutes typically on a record for the, um, because the, Basically, the sound would degrade. If you tried to shove too much music on a, a vinyl record on one side or the other, it wouldn't sound as good. So, I mean, that's the other thing, too, to think, like, well, you know, maybe, like, anything goes, maybe wouldn't have made the cut. But, I mean, right. you know, I never felt like anything was... When I was listening to Appetite in 1980, you know, late 87, very late Christmas time in 87, I really started to listen to it. And then, like, in the 88, um, you know, I didn't skip any songs. We used to, used to ride around and listen to it. And there were sort of plenty of albums where, you know, it was the cassette, you had to like fast forward to the next side, or, you know, you'd be like, I'll fuck these last two songs, we're going to fast forward to the end of the tape and flip it over. Um, me and my friends did that. Um, and in fact, we would, we would, uh, I think we used to do is we used to drink and watch the uh, Live at the Ritz. Once the Live at the Ritz was on MTV, and I don't remember when that was broadcast, you know, but we taped it, everybody taped it, you know, it, it, you taped it and you watched it. Because <laughs> it was like so amazing. I and mean, it was like so, again, in your face and it's so real it was just like yeah it was like you weren't like let's fast forward to you know whatever i mean we didn't fast forward any for any songs we listened to the whole thing it was great what is what's the biggest thing you, you've learned because I, I can say i have learned so much about guns and roses from doing this podcast it's like i just came into it like you came into writing a book about them as just a for lack of a better word nerd i came in as a, just a gnr nerd I work in radio. I, I happen to do this GNR podcast. It was not like it's, I. This was a, a, a dream of mine. It's just it's a, become a, a happy accident, and I've learned so much. Not just from you know the research I got to do for guests, uh, you know the guest stories, but from listeners bringing things to my attention who knew way more than I did. So I've I know so much about Guns N' Roses. So much more. What did you learn? The first record, I guess, for me, the big thing that I learned about it from talking to Ted Templeman and then kind of really spending a lot of time as a historian reading reviews of Van Halen one, reading articles about Van Halen. And that, you know, to me, when I discovered Van Halen before, it seemed like a no brainer, like, well, who wouldn't like this? <laughs> you know, it's like even if you didn't like it, you couldn't really deny that they were they had talent or that they were worth listening to. I mean, even if you hated David Lee Roth, you could still say, Well, Eddie Van Halen's good good guitar player if you you know whatever if you didn't like 
Eddie Van Halen's guitar style for some reason. You could still say like, well, David Lee Roth's an interesting performer. Um, you know, but for me to learn from Ted Templeman and to go through the articles and the reviews at the time to see that there wasn't a lot of love in the industry for Van Halen. It was shocking to me to learn from reading reviews and reading articles at the time from 1978 and having all these critics kind of trashing Van Halen and saying they're dinosaur rock and they're, you know, they're, uh, they're going to be gone in a year. And this is just, you know, this is basically a cash grab by Warner Brothers just to try to make, you know, like a, basically like a tax break saying like, oh, we're going to lose half a million dollars on this record. This is what we need. And to have Ted Templeman go tell me as a producer to say, you know, there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm throughout the company for Van Halen um beyond me i mean i was one of the people who really was pulling for them but i believed that they could actually sell a lot of records where other people were like well you know we like this band the sex pistols or this there's you know this new um you know eagles record that's going to come out we're gonna we're gonna pack whatever you know that type of stuff so for me to kind of hear that and to learn that to be like wow that people didn't really get it at first um you know that was a real eye-opener for me amazing so where i'm assuming it's on pre-order your your ted templeman uh book where where like where can we get it you know website where, where can we you know the best way so we can because uh, everyone's at home you know we need stuff to read we need stuff to do sure yeah it's um so it's uh available at amazon obviously barnes and noble um and there's a uh, if you're a, a person like me who likes to support the local independent bookstores there's definitely a lot of these independent bookstores have websites going now where you can you know order book and they'll ship them to you but um you know, obviously, for the mass majority of people, Amazon is still the easiest where uh, they can get the ebook, the paperback, and then the um, the uh, audiobook will all be out April 21st. I'll be um, selling some signed copies. We had hoped, Ted and I, signed by me, but Ted and I had hoped to be, well, we had planned to be in, in uh, LA together on April 21st to do book events and have this whole plan, but of course, that's all been shot to hell by. By COVID, so right. um, you know the the the, uh, the plan will be hopefully once everything gets cleared up and we get all healthier in America, we'll get to uh, get together and Ted and I and we can do a book events and sign some books together. For, but for the time being, um, yeah, I'll be have some I'll have signed books available. Follow me on Twitter at Greg Renoff and I'll explain how that'll work and we'll do the best we can under the circumstances. But yeah, I really appreciate the support and uh, you know the book covers his whole life and allows people to get an insight into his work with. You know, everybody from uh, Doobie Brothers and, and uh, Little Feet, Captain Beefheart, Van Halen, uh, Michael McDonald. And, you know, there's he had a really interesting career as both a performer and as a producer. He was a pop star before he was a producer. So hope people enjoy it. I put a lot of work into it intended to obviously really spend an enormous amount of time with me. And I'm excited for people to check it out. Well, congratulations, man. I mean, it's professionally as a fan. I mean, this has to be a dream come true. For you to put this uh, this book together, so congratulations! I know it's going to do extremely well, and and please come back on. I know we got to get uh, when I get a better setup, we're going to have a nice. Uh, we'll do more of a deep dive into Van Halen, Guns N' Roses, and maybe even talk about some of the other best debut rock albums. And we'll bring our buddy Matt Wake on with us. Would love it. Would love it. Matt's a great dude, and uh, I would love that. And um, just before you get out of here, everything uh, everything okay with your your family? Where are you uh, quarantined right now? Where in the world are I you? I am quarantined in uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and everything is okay. Uh, yeah. It is not a uh, that's okay. A fun a few more minutes. That's okay. Still there, have you? Yes, thank you. This is the beauty of doing a live thing. Hold Sorry. on. <laughs> <laughs> am I going to be on it now? Well, uh, no, I'm going to leave it in. I'm going to I'm going to leave it in. All of this. People seem to enjoy it. Yeah, everything Hi. Here, so, uh, <laughs> so she she likes uh, Dave Matthews. Let's, hey. let's uh, hey, my sister loves Dave Matthews. 
God bless you. Right. All right. <laughs> anyway, so you're in Oklahoma. Everyone's good. Everyone's good. Yeah, I got family <laughs> back in New Jersey and New York, and they're all uh, hunkered down. So it's uh, a lot of family. So it's a scary time for a lot of people. But we're doing okay here, and I appreciate it. Hope you guys stay safe, too. Thanks, Greg. And, of course, that goes out to every single one of you listening. If you've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, I've gotten such joy, such joy of connecting to everyone around the world and finding that common thread of guns and roses. That's the tie that connects us all together. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, uh, male or female or if you're, you know, gay or straight, if you're black or white or whatever country you're from, there's always a guns and roses connection between us. And now, unfortunately, there's a, a coronavirus connection between us. But it's helping us all come together, and I appreciate those of you who've been uh, continuing to listen to the podcast and follow on social media. And uh, I'll just have to acknowledge, I apologize, and I'm aware of it now going back and and editing of how much I'm clicking my freaking loud mouse that I have at home. So if that was bothering you, that was also bothering me. So I'm going to be very aware of not to to click around while talking to uh, a guest because what I'm really doing is just – looking at notes or looking at your comments, but I, I, I'll just use my my little pad on the laptop going forward, and uh, I appreciate the the audio bomb by my, my girlfriend, also something that's interesting about doing a podcast in your home and in, in quarantine. I'm still hoping to... I'm not getting a microphone for a while. Everything is backed up on Amazon, as I'm sure many of you know, and I understand that. There are more important things to deliver. And the quantity of those important things uh, would certainly take precedent over my silly little podcast and, you know, a radio needs. But whatever, you guys are are digging it, and I really appreciate it. So next time we have Greg on, I'll, I'll get a – I want him to get the full treatment, you know. that's. But this is what we're doing. We're making do, and every single one of you is making do. Um, I, I put out a, a social media question because I want you to participate, as always – between these podcasts, what member of Guns N' Roses, past or present, would you want to be quarantined with? You know, of course, there's a lot of Axel and Slash and Duff, Izzy, who's been self-quarantining forever. <laughs> and as I, I hoped, a lot of votes for Melissa Reese, because, you know, I'll leave it at that. Uh, as far as uh, upcoming guests, well, I still have, it's in the can, as they say. We have a Kathy Valentine from the Go-Go's. I'll put out that episode soon. She talks about making her solo record with Gilby Clark, which is pretty cool. And she has an autobiography um, that's out. So her book is out. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that we will get David Coverdale from, uh, from Whitesnake, duh, back on the podcast. I'm hoping that's going to be coming up soon. And I, I also still want to interview you for our fan obsession. I don't have my my soundboard right here with me because I'm not in the studio. I can edit the sound bites in later, but I'll spare you in the meantime. But uh, in the meantime, just um, again, follow on Facebook, facebook.com slash the AFD show, Twitter, Twitter at the AFD show, Instagram, appetite for distortion, uh, the full name. And what I, I love is because there's so many great Guns N' Roses Instagram accounts, uh, fan accounts rather. And in addition to just posting my own stuff, I I go around and I share a lot of those pics 
for the, I guess it's the Instagram live button or, or I don't, I don't know the phrase. I guess I'm not that cool. I'm not going live with it. I'm just sharing the picture. If that makes any sense, because there are as many Guns N' Roses photos as I've seen over the years. I love when I find a new one that I've never seen before. So I want to share them. So uh, please follow on Instagram and please continue to listen. However, you are listening, whether it be, be via iHeartRadio or Spreaker or Spotify, SoundCloud. As long as you're listening, it's just uh, very, very appreciated. So until the next one, next episode, when will you see it? When will you hear it? Will I go live? Again, Facebook Live. That's been fun doing these episodes, getting your your answers and reactions in real time. When is all that going to happen next? Well, in the words of Axl Rose concerning Chinese democracy, I don't know if soon is the word, but you'll see it. Thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home.